0: Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together, shall we? Father, as we turn to your word now, Lord, we ask you to speak to us. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. Lord, that is not just the product of man's ingenuity or wisdom, but this is the word of the creator God, to his creation. And so, Lord, as we read these things, help us to understand the things that you want us to know. Lord, about the times in which we live, and Lord, help us to see through all of this that you are in complete control. And Lord, we need not fear. For it is the, the God of angel armies that surrounds us, that protects us, that goes before us. And so Lord, we just give you this time now and pray that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this year we have taken upon the challenge of uh, going through the bible in a year um, we have up to the second session going through daniel daniel is such an incredible book that we've had to split it into two weeks um, the subheading for this study really daniel uh, is preeminence purpose purity and prophecy those three words and because through the book we see god's preeminence that the lord reigns The Lord is in complete control. It's the Lord who appoints kings. It's the Lord who sets up kings. We see purpose in two ways. One, that there's a purpose in life. That God had a plan in these young Hebrew boys that were taken away at their early teenage years to a foreign country. Everything seems so haphazard and wrong. And yet we see that God had a plan in this. Daniel makes the point that it's God who sets up kings and removes kings. No doubt thinking of Jehoiakim, the king that he'd been subject to whilst he was back in Jerusalem. But also purposed in regard to that which we read of Daniel in chapter 1 verse 8. That Daniel Daniel, purposed in his heart. I can't think of a better way of expressing that. that Absolute giving over to god 's way, God 's will, Daniel had purposed in his heart that he wasn 't going to be defiled, nothing was going to shake him or change him. And in regard to purity, well we were just talking a moment ago about the purity in this man that remained with him through his life, and really, what we see is that the decision was made before the choice was presented. And that's the way it should be. You know, we should have in our minds so clearly in our hearts the the way we are going to live, so that if a choice is presented, in a sense that there is no question, because we've already decided that we're going to go God's way. And as regard to prophecy, well, this is an amazing book. Most commentators will talk about how this book joins the Old and the New Testament together. And it does. The prophecies in this book are pivotal. We'll even see this morning that Jesus highlights this book as the key to understanding world events. And particularly in the days in which we live. In Job 24 verse 1, Job asks the question, Why do they that know God not see his days? And it's an incredible question because God has revealed to his servants... What's going to happen? How it's going to happen? And yet so many people within the church particularly are ignorant of Bible prophecy. Well, in terms of our time scale, we're dealing, of course, with the time of the exile when the Jews were taken away to Babylon. Prior to this, over 100 years before this, the northern kingdom had been taken away into captivity. But in terms of the span of this book, it covers the time from the exile Right up until the New Kingdom, when Jesus comes back and sets up his throne, the throne of David, and rules in Jerusalem. So it's it's a very broad uh, book in terms of the the far-reaching prophecies that we're going to see and we'll go through, uh, as Israel are brought back into this relationship with their Messiah, the re-establishment of the nation, all of these things. Well, last week we managed to go through the first four chapters, looking that Daniel was taken away just as a teenager. Uh, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, that God then uses this as a way of bringing Daniel to the fore in terms of the kingdom. Uh, Daniel, because he goes to God, God reveals that he interprets his dream. And as a result of this, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar then has this kind of ego trip going on in chapter 3 where in chapter 2 he sees his image with a golden head which is representative of him. But by the time he gets to chapter 3, he decides that he wants to be the one that lives forever, have this eternal kingdom. And so he makes the whole image of gold. Well, God brings him down to size as these three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, to give them their Hebrew names that glorify God. These three boys defy the king and the king is forced to, Effectively to repent and say, you know, God is the true God. Worship him alone. And then in chapter 4 we see this situation where the third time now Nebuchadnezzar is faced with this reality that it is God who rules in the kingdoms of men. But Nebuchadnezzar one evening walking around his palace looking at everything thinking, this is good, look what I've done. This is all mine. And God then reminds him, actually, that's not the case. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is afflicted with this strange condition. And effectively, he goes out, he's eating grass like the, uh, the ox and so on. Um, according to uh, the Jewish writings, it was Daniel that actually cared for Nebuchadnezzar during that time. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and he realizes and he repents. And he acknowledges that it is God who rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. And it wasn't anything about him. He was merely there because God had allowed him to be there. Well, then we get on to the fall of Babylon, which we're going to look at in a moment. The lion's den, a very famous uh, portion of scripture. So familiar to us from uh, children's stories. But there's a lot there that sometimes uh, the children's stories miss. Uh, and then we get on to the visions, starting in chapter 7. That really begins the, um, the, the visions in the book. The first six chapters are historical. But then the last six chapters, we find these visions, these prophetic visions given to Daniel. Chapter 7, we have this vision of the four beasts. Then chapter 8, the ram and the he goat. Then chapter 9, Daniel sets his heart to pray for his people. And God reveals something just amazing to Daniel, which we'll look at. And then chapter 10, 11 and 12 are one block. And if you understand the one block, it makes it a lot easier when you're reading it. Uh, otherwise, if you just take those individual chapters, it can get very confusing and try and work out who's who and what's going on. Uh, but we'll look at all of that as we go through. So. Let's pick up in chapter 5, uh, which is kind of where we left off last time. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He's on the throne. He became king in uh, 606 BC, but the first year of his reign, uh, the way that the Babylonians would have counted uh, their regal years, would have been 605 BC. Um, well, his grandson eventually, Belshazzar, ends up sitting on the throne. And it's his, him now that we're dealing with. Uh, so we've jumped forward in terms of the, the future of the nation of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar by this point has been dead for about 23 years and the news that now the United Medes and the Persians these were two separate um, powers that have now been joined together we're now on the move and heading towards Babylon no doubt that's obviously filtered through to the palace in Babylon of course in an emergency situation like that what do you think the king should do through a party well that's, that's what he does that's probably not what he should do though and he invites thousands of, thousands of the lords of Babylon. You see, in his mind, clearly, he's thinking Babylon was impregnable. It was this fortified city. There was these incredible walls that you could have chariot races around the top. Were, you, you'd have not knocked those walls down. And clearly, he just thought, you know, they had everything they needed. The river flowed through Babylon. They had the vegetation and food and drink. They, they could just shut the doors and be under siege for years, and it wouldn't matter. Well, that was clearly the thinking. Babylon, some 15 miles on a side, a massive uh, city, bigger than London today. Now, if overconfidence was his first mistake, he was soon to make his second. And we read in verse 2 of chapter 5 Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, well, firstly, we're told that it's not good for kings to drink. By the way, we are kings and priests. I mentioned that as well. But we're told that it's uh, in in Proverbs that it's not good for kings to to drink wine. It affects their judgment. Belshazzar, while he tasted wine, commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Notice this predates the Persian rule and empire. In the book of Esther, the wives the ladies weren 't allowed in when the men were celebrating. Um, they became very separate groups at that point, but Daniel records something that unless he 'd been an eyewitness he wouldn 't really have known that the Babylonians allowed the wives and the concubines everybody was in together in the, the parties and celebrations they were having' just another evidence that Daniel was really an eyewitness of these things but Belshazzar then goes and gets these cups, these utensils, things that have been dedicated and consecrated for God. And now they're going to use them to party and to get drunk. And then we're told in verse 5, The same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick. Don't miss the details here. This would have been one of the brightest places in the room. The most obvious for this to happen. You know, As his hand writes, is all lit up by the candlestick that's against the wall. And we're told, upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, the king saw part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. That means he didn't make it to the bathroom in time, in case you're wondering. And it's the funny thing about this is that it's recorded in the book of Isaiah over 150 years beforehand that this would happen and clearly word of this gets out as well but the king is clearly very very concerned about this situation question of course why can anyone read that which was written upon the wall well, most Jews, the Jewish scribes and scholars, uh, and certainly Bible commentators to, to this day, uh, are fairly convinced that the reason they couldn't read it, it wasn't in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek or a language that was known. It was actually encrypted. It was a code, in a sense, written seemingly in Hebrew, because Daniel straight away recognized it. There's a number of encryptions that we find in the Bible. Maybe another time we can go through and look at some of them. But this is a very specific type of encryption. And Daniel looks at it and immediately recognises it as he comes in in a moment. But let's just back up first of all. The king cried aloud to bring in... Now, notice what he does first. Not go to Daniel, who he knew of, clearly. But he goes to the astrologers, to the Chaldeans. Again, the Chaldeans being the priests of Babylonia. The soothsayers. <clears throat> and the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Well, because at this point, Belshazzar is co ruler. His dad actually is the real king, but he's gone away. He was very unpopular in Babylon and he'd gone down to Africa and he was uh, conducting military exploits down there. So Belshazzar had been left in charge in Babylon. So they're the the first two, as it were. So whoever interprets this is offered the position of being third. Now, aged somewhere about 81 years at this point, Daniel is finally sent for. Nobody else can interpret this, and so uh, they're told, in fact, it's the queen mother um, that tells Belshazzar, what about Daniel? And so the funny thing is, that he gives Belshazzar a telling off. Before he starts to interpret, Daniel, when he arrives, really gives a bit of a lecture. At 81, he's not that bothered about Belshazzar's opinion of him. And he begins to then interpret the dream. Daniel's um, highlighted and brought to, the, to Belshazzar's attention, as I say, by the Queen Mum, who clearly would have been uh, the daughter uh, of. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, no doubt familiar with Daniel, because of the fact that, as I mentioned, Daniel had looked after seemingly Nebuchadnezzar during that seven years of his illness. I possibly very grateful because of that. And she talks about um, Nebuchadnezzar as being a real king, you know, not like you, Belshazzar. Uh, but then this interpretation is given, and we have these words that are written on the wall. And firstly, the word is "mene," mean simply, "God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it." And then tekel, you are weighed and found wanting. And then this final word is uphassan, which really means divided. Your kingdom is divided and also given to the Medes and the Persians. There's kind of a play on the word in that. But that's what is being said. And this is how Daniel effectively interprets it to the king. Well, Herodotus, a Greek historian, makes this comment. On October twelfth, 539 BC, Cyrus' his general, a man by the name of Gubru, actually then captured Babylon without a battle. Now this had been the way that Cyrus had gone about his military conquest. He didn't go in all guns blazing, but he was smart. And he managed to take Babylon without a battle because all they did, the Persians simply diverted the river Euphrates into a canal somewhere upstream. And so the water level simply dropped, according to Rhodotus, to the height of the middle of a man's thigh, which, of course, then rendered the defences and stuff. They were simply able to walk in on the riverbed underneath the gates into the city. So while Belshazzar is now having this party and everything else, outside we've got the Persian army ready to come in and invade. And, of course, this then begins the dynasty of Cyrus, the great uh, the uh, Achaemenid Empire. Um, we have uh, these kings of uh, Persia, many of them well known to us from biblical uh, perspective. Of course, Cyrus here, uh, we recognize, we'll talk in a moment, is the one that signs the decree eventually for the Jews to return home. Um, we have then his son, Cambyses. Um, he allows uh, well, he, the, the request of Israel's enemies to be granted, so the work on the temple is finally stopped. Um, they start some of the work, but they stop it. Uh, then we have another... King Smyrdes, who was believed to be a bit of an imposter. But then finally, uh, Darius the Great. Now, this isn't the Darius that we're going to read about in a moment. That's this chap up here, who we seem to be Goobro, who was Cyrus's military general. And he's given the rule over Babylon. Um, But this, Darius the Great, 520-486, to in his second year, in Ezra 4.24, is confirmed, also in the book of Haggai, uh, he grants permission for the temple to be built. And then in about four or so years, the temple's completed. Following on from him, we have this king, Xerxes, who is the king that we read about in the book of Esther. And finally, this king down the bottom, Artaxerxes Longimanus, uh, is the king that signs uh, a decree allowing the walls and the city to be rebuilt all very significant from a biblical perspective. The history of this period is quite uh, important. Now, when Cyrus finally arrives at Babylon, somewhere about 11 days later uh, after this event, Daniel, it's recorded by Josephus, presents him with the scroll of Isaiah which has got in uh, the um, scroll in Isaiah the reference to Cyrus himself and how he would actually conquer and the fact that the loins of this king would be loosened. It's all recorded 150 years before the event and seemingly Cyrus is so impressed that Daniel is given a place of prominence in the next government as Cyrus sets up his new government in this area. And as I said, eventually we'll see within... Uh, two years of this point, he then frees the Jewish captives and allows them to return home. Uh, and he even gives them incentives and money and everything else to rebuild their temple. And this is partly recorded on the cylinder of Cyrus. You can go and see this today. This is up in the British Museum. Um, on the, side, on the, the cylinder, it says, Without a battle he entered the town, sparing any calamity. He says, I returned to the sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris. Okay, this is Jerusalem. Uh, the sanctuaries of which had been in ruins for a long time and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. Now, again, just confirming what we read in scripture, you can go and see that in the British Museum. It's, it's surprisingly small when you actually see it in the flesh. Um, but uh, there we are. So we move into chapter 6. And by this point, we now have this chapter. Darius, uh, Guberu from secular history, this uh, individual who had been uh, the military general under Cyrus who'd come in and conquered Babylon, he's given the control, the rule over the provinces in Babylon, and he sets up 120 princes, of which Daniel is given. The primary position, and by the way, Darius is a title, a bit like Pharaoh is given to the kings of Egypt. So uh, Darius, Darius, however you wish to pronounce it, um, depends whether your cavalry chapel is in America or England, as whether it's Darius or Darius, I think, but uh, either either one will do. Um, d- so uh, this individual, the, the name simply means holder of the scepter. Um, Cyrus was the king over the empire. Uh, he'd united the two nations. He'd had a, one of his parents had been from Media, the other from Persia, and so he joined these two forces together. So he's the king over the whole realm, and this chap uh, Darius is then put over the area of Babylon. And so we see that he's appointed by Cyrus. And chapter nine also confirms that he was made king over the Chaldeans. So it wasn't something that he uh, got by conquest in that sense. It was a position that had been given to him as I said, this uh, chap uh, goober in secular history. Well, Daniel, as I said, becomes one of the government officials, much seemingly to the consternation of the other officials. And- why the antagonism? Well, quite probably because back in chapter 2, Daniel, if you remember there, had been made Rab Mag, uh, the term that we have actually recorded in J- Jeremiah. Um, but chief of the Magi, and twice in, in fact, three times in the book of Daniel is uh, made reference, and he's given this position. The Magi were this hereditary Persian sect, but of course Daniel wasn't, Hereditary In that sense, he didn't uh, derive it because of his birthright. He was placed in this position of being chief over the magi, who were the Persian priests in a sense. One of their responsibilities was appointing kings, acting as royal counsellors. Now, as the Persians are now coming into power, the obvious conclusion would be, well, we're going to put Persian people in control. And yet Daniel, this Jewish slave, is placed in this position of extreme importance, effectively second in the kingdom. That's why these others... Was so antagonistic towards Daniel. And that then lays the foundation for what we go on and see. So um, no doubt the other Magi appointees were expecting a regime change. Clearly that doesn't happen. And this is what I believe then leads to the conspiracy that we see in chapter 6. And quite simply what happens is out of jealousy seemingly, uh, these other leaders... Come to Darius, and they get him to sign a decree that no one should petition any power except him for 30 days, or be thrown to the lions. Now, we've already seen, we've mentioned already, that the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be altered. And we see this uh, from the image we saw in chapter 2. The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, just supremely powerful. Whatever he said, when, if he changed his mind, that was fine. But when it comes to the Persian Empire, they're not as strong, not as uh, pure, not as valuable in that sense. You have the silver compared to the gold. And the Persian Empire, whilst powerful and geographically had a larger area, they hadn't the power that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so we see that the law of the Medes and the Persians can't be altered. So the king can't change his decree once it's signed. Now, the most remarkable thing is when Daniel finds out about this decree, that he's not allowed to petition any power for 30 days, what does he do? Well, we're told in Daniel 6 verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. You see, again, going back to chapter 1 verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. It was already decided. This decree didn't change anything because Daniel had already decided what he was going to do. Whatever was going to happen, Daniel was still going to be petitioning and seeking God. All this decree did was cause a problem for other people. For Daniel, he just carried on. His heart was steadfast. It was devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God that had been with him through his life. The God that had delivered his friends from the fiery furnace. The God that had led him every step of the way. As a result of this, you find that Darius was sore displeased, we're told in the text. He was very unhappy with himself. He'd been so stupid as to listen to these people. You know, no doubt they'd come in and um, telling him how wonderful he's. Oh, king, live forever. And you know, he's saying, yeah, that's a good idea, we'll do that. And you know, just being so enamored by all this worship and praise they're offering him. So he quite happy signs this decree and suddenly looks back after the event. And with the benefit of hindsight, realise how gullible he's been. Of course, unable to change the law, Daniel is thrown to the lions, as Jero shared a moment ago. Daniel's somewhere around about ninety years old, thrown into this pit. But clearly, Daniel's impact on Darius is seen in Darius's own confession. And in verse sixteen, we read, "Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions." Now the king spoke and said unto Daniel, "Thy God, whom thou servest continually," what a statement from a king looking at this man's life and saying. You serve God continually. I just—I heard somebody once say somebody went up to a Christian and said, uh, um, "They said oh, you're a Christian, aren't you?" And the reply was, "Well, that's for you to tell me." I like that. You know, other people should be able to look at us and they should be able to tell whether we are Christians or not. It should be so obvious. And Darius here says of Daniel that you serve your God continually. What a lovely statement, what a lovely thing to be said and have recorded for eternity in God's word. Darius says, the God that you serve continually, he will deliver thee. What a statement of faith by this Gentile king. Clearly, there was something so special about Daniel that the king had observed, that he knew Daniel's faith wasn't just a blind faith. But this was something that was real, it was tangible, it really mattered and meant something. And so, we find Daniel, of course, is thrown in and of course subsequently delivered and his aggressors then meet the fate they planned for Daniel Um, in the morning king comes out and says cries out to Daniel 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 did your God deliver you kind of wonder how long Daniel sat there quietly yeah king I'm fine don't worry all right you know and then of course then he's taken out and then all those that are conspired we're told that they're thrown in and their families with them and everything else and um, you just kind of wonder as they all get down to the bottom of these, pit and these hungry lions whose mouths have been stopped the night before by this angel. And they look up and they see these, all these lions around them. And I just wonder whether the lions were kind of just sitting there kind of praying as it were. And no doubt these aggressors and things thinking, Oh great, these are godly lions, we'll be safe. And then the lions go for what we're about to receive. <laughs> we're told that as they were thrown in, the lions just pounced on them and tore them apart. The interesting thing is that it's their families as well. You know, this is what sin does. And we see a great echo of this in Matthew eighteen twenty-five. Sin will cost you everything. You know, these individuals sinned, but it cost them their families. Sometimes we think that the things we do only impact us. That's not true. It's families as well. All that get roped in and, and uh, all end up suffering as a result of sin. And within a church, you know, we're told that even the, the what's seemingly the most insignificant part is so important. And if one part suffers, every part suffers. You know, we need to be praying for each other. None of us are immune to temptation and to sin. And we need to keep praying for each other because it can affect the whole body if one part is struggling or suffering. Proverbs 14 tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Verse 35 says, The king's favor is toward a wise servant. We see that here. But his wrath is against them that cause shame. And we see that dramatically played out in this scenario. You know, Lions at this point uh, were very uh, prevalent in the whole area. Uh, there's a number of records talking about these lions' dens that were had. Uh, again, just the historicity of Daniel. It's reliable. These things we know were true. Uh, history confirms that which the Bible tells us. And of course the Bible is history, it's not some um, mythological account, it's God's word, it's revealing things that have taken place. So that's now the historical portion of the book over and we get into these visions uh, and we see now just jumping back a little bit in time, so Jesus moved back in time to the first year of Belshazzar, so about 552 BC. Chronologically it fits about 11 years after chapter 4 and about 12 years um, after chapter 5. So... Um, this is uh, where we're looking then. So this, so this is how the book of Daniel lays out chronologically. Um, so this is the point that we're actually at in terms of dates now as we come down. And Daniel now, this is the first vision as such that Daniel himself has. Remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That was Nebuchadnezzar's vision that Daniel interprets. But now Daniel gets a vision himself. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the, uh, the dream and told the sum of the matters. Just know, Daniel's going to give us the summary. He tells us some sum of the matters. These are the important bits, the highlights. Um, and what Daniel's going to see in this vision is four great beasts coming up out of the sea in succession. Now, the sea through scripture is often used as an idiom of the world, representing the nations of the world or the whole world itself. And these beasts seemingly are representative nations yet to come from Daniel's perspective. So from Daniel's point of view in time, he's looking forward to things that are going to happen in the future. And interestingly, all of these beasts are Gentiles coming up out of the sea and so on. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus there spoke of Jerusalem being trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now that period that Jesus speaks of began in 606 with that first um, siege on Jerusalem when Jerusalem suddenly lost sovereignty. It comes under the power of Babylon at that point and that period of time carries on all the way up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And In chapter 2 we saw that we had this statue with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thigh of bronze, and the legs uh, of iron, and then the toes of iron mingled with clay. And we saw these representing Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome as it was back in the time of Jesus, and then seemingly a revised Rome uh, coming out of uh, that. But Daniel chapter 7, we then have a vision of a winged lion, which again seemingly is representative of Babylon. In fact, if you look at the Babylon have Babylonian uh, um, sculpture and uh, those kind of things that have been found a lot of their creatures and the, the images they built have these wings on it, winged lions and, and so on Persia um, is this bear um, seemingly representative of the nation and Then Greece again a leopard a leopard representing um, this incredible speed with which Greece then conquered the world as it was Um, And then we finally get to a terrible beast. Daniel doesn't even try and link it or uh, describe it as being anything. Uh, It's just a terrible beast, representative of Rome. And then finally, out of that beast come these... Ten horns. So, again, this seems to be a mirror of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, that Daniel now is getting this vision of these empires that were to come from that point in time moving forward. Now, to talk about the ten horns, because that's of real interest for us, they represent ten kings who will rise to power as part of the last world empire of this age. Now, it's 24, verse 24 of this chapter, but also confirmed to us in Revelation 17, verse 12. But then we're told that a little horn will also rise up from among them and subdue three of them. Again, this is in verse 24 we're told this. The little horn will then um, be empowered by the devil and will, if you like, re-establish Babylon. The one world government, the one world religious system. Very interesting prophetic link that you can draw from chapter 4. As we see this stump that is chopped down, bound with iron and bronze only then potentially to rise again. And we see all these things on the near horizon today. We're so close to a one-world government. You know, Fifty years ago, people would really question that possibility. Now, it's common talk amongst you know, the governments of the world. The idea of a one-world government is not a million miles away. There's a reference, though, in this to the saints. I just want to clarify this, because we read in verse 21, I beheld and the same horn. Now, we're dealing, of course, in the future here with Antichrist, the one who is going to come, um, who will be so antagonistic towards the Jews. And we read, beheld the same horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now, some try to use this verse to suggest that the church, therefore, will endure the tribulation. Well, that's very poor word association. Because all they've done there is say, well look, it says saints, and the church is saints, therefore that's the church. Well, that's really a very poor kind of equation. Because in scripture, saints are referred to as a number of different groups. Now, Jesus makes it very clear that not even the gates of hell, the councils of hell, would prevail against the church. So, if we take Jesus' words as our foundation, our starting point, this can't be referring to the church. And clearly it's not, because Daniel would have understood this to be Israel, who throughout the Old Testament are referred to as saints. And you can see a number of scriptural references there. So we're told that this horn, this individual that's going to come out of these ten nations, these ten kingdoms in the end times, this one that's going to rise to prominence, he is going to make war and prevail over the Jews, which is consistent with what we know from the rest of Scripture. But then we read on, because after all of this horrible situation is played out, we read in verse 9 of chapter 7. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, I just want to pause here, because the description you've just had, if you look in the beginning of the book of Revelation, it seems very similar to the vision that John sees. You know, this individual, uh, the ancient days, we're told, garment was white as snow, hair like his head, like pure wool, his throne was like fiery flame, and so on. And initially, you may think this is Jesus. But as we go on, we're told again, that then one like the Son of Man came, and came to the ancient of days, so seemingly we have God the Father in this vision as being seen. And the Son comes before, before the Father. And then we're told in verse 14, And there were given him, Jesus, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that will shall not be destroyed. Now this again is in fulfilment. Of so many scriptures, Daniel. Sorry, uh, Samuel, two Samuel, uh, chapter seven speaks of the everlasting kingdom, the throne of David that would go on forever. And here Jesus then comes and claims this throne. Why is this image so similar? Uh, The the, the image of God in in here in Daniel seven and the image of Jesus. Well, John ten thirty, Jesus said, "I and my Father are one." It's no wonder there's a similarity as we look at those two things. And yet one clearly here is God the Father and the Son comes and is granted this dominion and this kingdom which will last forever. Well, chapter 8, we then see another vision. We read, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me even unto Daniel after that which appeared to me at the first. So it's been about two years since Daniel's first vision, which we've just looked at, and Daniel now receives another one. Uh, At this point, Daniel's somewhere in the region of about 69 years old, a 70-year-old man almost. At this point, we're told Daniel actually is not in Babylon, but he's moved across here to this place of Shushan, which is in in today's um, uh, Iran area. Now, Daniel now sees two horns, but one is higher than the other, seemingly representing the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire. I say seemingly, actually the text itself tells us that's the case, because verse 20 makes that clear. And then Daniel then sees a male goat, a great speed, but with a notable horn, we're told, in verse 5. And that, we're told in verse 21 of this chapter, is the king of Greece, who from history we then know was Alexander. But then the ram is destroyed by the groat. So Media, Persia was conquered by Greece, just as history records of Alexander's conquests. Now Alexander, incredible individual, at the age of twenty, he becomes king, taking over from Philip of Macedon his father. And six years later, he'd conquered the Persian Empire. So just a twenty-six-year-old young man. At the age of thirty, his empire stretched from the Mediterranean to the Hindu Kush. At the age of thirty-two, though, he dies left obviously this uh, legacy there's an in- interesting situation because when he dies let's, let's pick up the text uh, daniel 8 verse 8 says therefore the goat waxed very great speaking of alexander and when he was strong the great horn was broken so in his prime he's just a young man he's broken he dies and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven Now, when you see that reference, four winds of heaven, we're just dealing with the cardinal points in the compass, north, south, east, west. So, in Alexander's stead, comes up with these four others, geographically looking after different regions, so it would seem. And out of the one, there came forth a little horn. Now, it gets very confusing. You have to follow the thread through. So, we've got Alexander, who then... As he dies, four others rise up and out of one of those we're told a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. You you and I may not get that, but Daniel certainly would have understood that's talking of Jerusalem. After Alexander died, his kingdom was divided before his four generals, and the descendant of one of those would cause significant harm to Israel, and we'll look at that in a while. These are the Four generals, and you can see geographically they all took a different region: uh, Cassander Macedonian Greece, uh, Lysimachus Thrace, Bithynia, most of Asia Minor, Ptolemy Egypt, and the area around there, and Seleucus uh, was Syria. Now, that, those are the two that we're kind of most interested in. Um, this area here, this becomes a, a really significant point because, of course, Jerusalem really lies right in the centre of that. And Jerusalem becomes a buffer state between these two, what would then become, rival powers. People refer sometimes to the 400 silent years that exist from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. What you'll see in a moment when we look at Daniel 11 briefly is all of that history is told us in advance. But let's just jump into chapter 9 to carry on. Jesus gave a confidential briefing to four of his disciples, to Peter, James, John and Andrew. And we find it recorded in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, in Mark, and also in Luke. Matthew twenty-four, twenty-five, Luke 13, and Luke... Uh, Mark 13, Luke 21. And Jesus points them to Daniel 9 as the key to understanding end-time prophecy. This is such an important and pivotal event. Jesus said, "...when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... Stand in the holy place. Whoso reads, let him understand. Okay, so if you've just read that, it's your responsibility to understand. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And then Jesus carries on. So Jesus specifically points to the events that we're about to review briefly here in chapter 9 of Daniel. Now chapter 9, breaking it down, the first three verses are an introduction. The next verses from 4 to 15. Daniel prays for his people. Then Daniel changes his tact and prays for Jerusalem, the city. But then midway through that prayer, Gabriel interrupts Daniel. And then Gabriel gives Daniel this incredible vision, this prophetic word for the future of his people. Just notice that what Daniel is doing here, as he sets his heart to pray, he says, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, if you work out the chronology of all of this, Daniel is looking at this in 537 BC. That's the same year that Cyrus signs the decree for the Jews to turn home. See, I think what Daniel's doing here, because he's specifically looking at, questioning, trying to understand the situation to do with the desolations of Jerusalem. Now that's a period of time, a 70 year period as prophesied by Jeremiah that started in 587. Now I think what we're seeing here just to highlight this because most assume that the, Jewish, the release of the Jews um, hadn't yet happened and Daniel's praying about that. Uh, Daniel here is praying for their release. That's what the majority of commentators and scholars think. But if I look at the dates, I don't think that's the case. You see, 539 was the first year of Darius. and this point, Cyrus has now signed that decree. So Daniel, I believe, is praying after the Jews have returned home. Only very shortly after, but the Jews have now gone back to the land. Of course, he's an old man. He's not... At this point, in his you know, kind of 80s, whatever, uh, into the 90s at this point, going to suddenly uproot and everything back to Jerusalem. He stays there. He's obviously, he's got a position of importance still. And at this point, he's praying for the city. But interestingly, because as we look at the prayer, again, he says, I, oh, Daniel, understood. It's almost like it clicks, because he'd been praying about the people, and now he's kind of turning to the city and I think what Daniel understands is there is still a period of time to go. Well, he sets his heart to pray. Interestingly, he quotes Second Chronicles 6.37 from Solomon's wording. He said, If they sin against thee, speaking of the Jews, for there is no man that sins not, and thou be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives into a land far off or near. Yet if they bethink themselves... In the land where they carry captive, and turn and pray unto thee, in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, we have dealt wickedly. If you look at the text in Daniel 9, Daniel prays those words. Daniel, pray according to the word of God, that's the way we should pray, you know. Use God's words in the things that he's given us in his word as part of our petitions to him. Daniel nine five. we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. We've rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. So Daniel first confesses the sins of his people who I believe now have returned home. Then the focus turns to the city which is still laying in ruins. And this is the bit that Daniel understands that there's still some time left of the judgment on the, 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 the city. But he pleads with the Lord for mercy. And it's such an impassioned plea that we read. And as you read the the latter portion of that uh, in Daniel chapter 9, you see the intensity of Daniel's prayer. But nevertheless, as he's praying for that, Daniel is interrupted by Gabriel, who reveals not just the immediate future concerning the people in the city, which is what Daniel had been praying about, but the entire future of the nation of Israel in just four verses These are probably the most four amazing verses of prophecy in the entire Bible. Verse 24, we have the scope of the prophecy. In verse 25, we have 69 weeks. I'll explain that in a moment. Then in 26, there's an interval. And in verse 27, we have the 70th week. So we have 70 weeks that are prophesied for the nation. Now, what do we mean by we're looking at weeks? We're not talking about... Weeks as we would count weeks. Now, what we need to understand, the Jews had different ways of counting. They would have a week of days. That's what we're familiar with, which is a normal week. Of course, the seventh day is the Sabbath. Again, just seven days. But they'd also have a week of weeks, which would be seven weeks. We see that. that takes you from Passover up to Pentecost. That's another way they would count. They'd also have a week of months, which would be seven months. And we see that in the uh, calendar of the feast as well, from this end So a week of months would be seven months. And they also have a week of years, which was seen in sabbatical years for the land. So again, so one week of years would be seven years. So the first year would be like your first day of the week, second year, second day of the week, and so on. So the 70 weeks of years, which is what's being referenced here, is equivalent to you and I's 490 years. So to make it simple, what Gabriel is saying is, Daniel, there's 490 years that are decreed upon your people. Okay, it says, and upon your holy city. Now it's interesting as we note this, what we're told, because clearly this is in reference to the Jews. So these 70 weeks have nothing to do with church or anything else. This is about Israel. Upon thy holy people, the Jews, and upon thy holy city. And during this time we're told of things that will be completed to finish the transgression. That's not happened yet, I'm sure you'll agree. To make an end of sins. Again, that's not happened yet. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Well, arguably we could say that has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. But the Jews have not yet become beneficiaries of that. To bring in everlasting righteousness. And to seal up vision and prophecy. And then to anoint the most holy. So a number of things are to take place. Clearly this hasn't yet been completed. But then Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from, so we're given a starting point, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, unto, so we're given a kind of terminus here, the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Okay, or 483 years, if you do the maths. And we told the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. Now, 69 weeks is what's being referenced there. Times are seven weeks of years. They give us 483 years. So we're told that the start point is a command to restore and build Jerusalem. And at the end of that period of time, the Messiah would come. What a prophecy. The Jews have in their scriptures a prophecy telling them when the Messiah would come. So how possibly could they miss it if it was so clear to them? Notice also what we're told, that the city and the walls would be built again in troublous times. Well, we only need to look back and review our study on Ezra and Nehemiah to see that was indeed a troublous time. There were, the walls and the streets and things were built, but it was a very difficult time. Lots of opposition. Now, the command to store and rebuild Jerusalem was actually given by another Persian king, uh, to Arthur XVI Longimanus, in, on March 14, 445 BC. In the 20th year of his reign is the command given. And when we do the maths, the 173, 880 days is actually, if we're to work out the number of days, assuming, as we've said before, 360 day years, which is the way the Bible deals in prophetic years. If we calculate forward from that time, it comes to the 6th of April, AD 32, the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the only day in his ministry where he set himself up and said, I am the Messiah. Every time through his ministry, when people tried to worship him, make him king or whatever else, he walked away. He said, see no man know it. Don't tell anybody. On this day, he sends his disciples to go and get a donkey. Because when kings would come in peace, they would come in riding on a donkey. When they would come in battle, they'd come riding on a horse. He was coming in peace to bring peace, everlasting peace. And so he rides in as a king to Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy on the very day that Gabriel had prophesied. The Jews miss it. And Luke 19 makes it very clear. As a result of this, the Jewish eyes are blinded because they missed the day of their visitation, Luke tells us. And so as a result, their eyes are blinded. And that's a period of time that they are still in that state of blindness at the moment. In the next verse in 26, we're told that the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And this would occur after the 69 weeks. But it's before we get to the final week. Because then we get to the final week. And we're told he... Now who is the he here? Well we're told that there is going to be a prince that shall come that shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, But the interesting thing is he will be of the people that destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, So the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary in Jerusalem were the Romans. So the prince that's coming... There's referenced here has to be of that people, so this individual that we're now talking about, the he, has to be this prince who is of the Roman Empire. But clearly, we're dealing at a time yet future, and we're told this is the last week, our last period of seven years, and in the middle of the week, he's going to cause this. After three and a half years, he'll cause the sacrifice and the oblation and the offerings to cease. And then goes on, and what we also find is that this abomination this is what Jesus speaks of this abomination, an image that we placed into the temple, the holiest placed. So what about the, the church in all of this? How does that fit in? Well, again, we have our decree by our Artax- this period of time which takes us up to the point where Jesus rises into Jerusalem sixth of April in our calendar, tenth of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. We've then got the church age, this interval after the 69 weeks but before the 70th week. Now, I believe the church will be taken out or raptured prior to this and then God will commence this final week dealing with Israel. You see, God has only ever dealt with Israel exclusively of his dealings with the Gentiles. I apologize, it's a bit faded, but there's a period of time from Abraham to the Exodus. If you... Look at the number of years, 505 years, and detract from that the times of Gentiles, in a sense. The times of Ishmael, uh, the situation concerning Ishmael, there's 15 years to do with that. We end up with 490 years. If we go from the Exodus to the temple, and we take out all the times that Israel were under the servitude of the other nations around uh, that that period of time, the Edomites and uh, the Midianites and so on, we're left with a period of 490 years. You go from the temple to this uh, edict of Artaxerxes, which we've just been looking at, uh, mentioned a moment ago. Um, if you take out the Babylonian captivity, you have 490 years. And then this prophecy that we're talking about right now, we've already seen the first 483 years terminate when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. There's another seven years yet to come. But in the interval here, just as we've seen in all these occasions when God is dealing with the Gentiles, Israel's clock is put on hold. And that's exactly where we are right now, waiting for the church to be taken out, to be taken back to the place that the Lord has prepared for us, and then we'll begin the 70th week. It's incredible, God's control on history. Well, these last three chapters are one block. This is the third vision. It occurs the third year of Cyrus, around about 536. This is the last vision that Daniel gets, The the, kind of the tail end of the book, tail end of his life in a sense. Um, Chapter 10 gives us the intro and chapters 11 and 12 actually then give us the vision itself. It's really important that we understand that because if you jump into chapter 11 and try and make head or tail of it, you'll get very confused as to who it's talking about. These last three chapters span human history from the time of Daniel to the time when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom and reign on the throne of David. But note that the focus is Israel. Okay, verse 14 of chapter 10. Now I am come to make thee, Daniel, understand this, Gabriel speaking, by the way. And it says, What shall befall thy people, the Jews, in the latter days? For the vision is yet for many days. Now, What we see here, the background, is Daniel has set his heart to try and understand this vision. He's seen this vision, he's trying to understand it. Gabriel then is dispatched by God to reveal the vision to Daniel. But chapter 10 records a war that takes place in the heavenly realms between a satanic power called the Prince of Persia and the Archangel Michael. And the Archangel Michael steps in and allows Gabriel to get through and come and give this explanation to Daniel. Michael, incidentally, always appears in the role of protector of Israel in Scripture. And Gabriel, also, we can define his role because he's always seen in regard to a messianic announcement of some kind. So let's move straight into chapter 11. This is mind-blowing. Between verse 2, as if that which we've seen already isn't convincing enough, between verse 2 and verse 35, there are a staggering 135 fulfilled prophecies. And the Bible critics really hate this chapter. It's one of the reasons they always try and push for a 2nd century BC authorship of Daniel. It's been totally uh, discredited, those kind of scholarly views and ideas. Uh, Bill Cooper's recent book and book by... Robert Dick Wilson uh, and many others have just shown the the stupidity of the critics' views. Daniel had to be an eyewitness. Daniel was written at the time of Daniel by Daniel. Uh, And Jesus himself makes that clear for us as well. So this chapter offers irrefutable proof that the Bible really is the word of God because no man can accurately predict with such detailed precision the rise and fall of world empires and all the political manipulating and the deception of successive kingdoms and all the battles that we fought. If you go through this, it's probably worth doing so with a uh, a study Bible or a commentary of some description to look at the secular parts. Maybe one day we'll get to study this in detail. It's phenomenal. And it's all recorded hundreds of years before the events take place. It just starts and simply in chapter 11, Also I... Now, if you start reading chapter 11, your assumption will be that's Daniel. But it's not, because you need to go back to the previous chapter and realize who's talking. And it's Gabriel who's talking. So this is Gabriel saying, Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. And that's an interesting scripture that we could spend a lot of time trying to get our heads around and understand that. But he carries on in verse 2. And now will I show thee the truth? Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia... And the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all, uh, uh, stir up all against the realm of Greece. Again, it's Gabriel that's uh, speaking and saying this. When we look at the Babylonian kings, from this point, three kings did indeed come. Cambyses, Smyrdes, and Darius the Great, with is the ones he mentioned earlier. And then a fourth king... This is the king of Esther, Esther's husband effectively, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Um, And this is the king that stirred up the realm of Greece. He had a number of uh, battles. We talked about it when we were going through the book of Esther, giving you the background. And as a result of that, that in time, over there's many other Persian kings that followed on from this point, but it eventually led to this rivalry, this big rivalry between Greece and Persia that led to Alexander having this, absolute obsession with conquering Persia and it all comes from the battles here just as it's being prophesied now again we mentioned these two characters Ptolemy and Seleucus these are two of Alexander's generals but what the rest of this chapter will do is go through looking at the battles between these are the, the kings of the south and these are the kings of the north this is just from history but we find that there's intrigue there's battles there's marriage alliances there's some have victories sometime other has victories other times everything is detailed with incredible precision but all of that is getting to a point where we look at this individual here, Antiochus IV, or sometimes referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, from about 175 to 163 BC, getting much closer to the time of Christ now. Okay? Now, this is the individual that the chapter will go on to talk about. He was part of the Seleucid Empire, as you've just seen. He'd come to power, again, following the death of Alexander, that line that comes down. He was the eighth king of this dynasty, And he ascended to the throne after the death of his father and imprisonment by Rome of his elder brother. But Antiochus was not the rightful heir because Seleucus, his brother, had a son who should have been the rightful heir. But through intrigue and political maneuverings and bribery and all sorts of other things and flattery, etc., Antiochus succeeded in becoming king. He then invades Egypt. Ptolemy, who's down south at this point. On his way back up, he stops at Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is right in the middle. They're not happy about this. They don't like being in this particular situation. And the Jews try to resist. But in response, Antiochus plunders and desecrates the temple. This is that little horn that we mentioned back in chapter 8 uh, that, that comes up. Um, and he desecrates the temple. He even goes as far as sacrificing a pig on the altar just to annoy the Jews. He tried to do everything he possibly could to offend them. The foreign record comes from 1 Maccabees. It's from the Apocrypha, not part of Scripture, but it's an interesting record from a historical point of view. The king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary. Well, isn't that interesting? Because just cast your mind back to Daniel 9 a moment ago, looking way off into the future at Antichrist, What's he going to do? He's going to put an end to offerings and sacrifices. Well, this individual was doing exactly that way back before. Profaning the Sabbath and feasts, defiling the sanctuary and the priests and so on, build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine, unclean animals, etc., to leave their sons uncircumcised. He also erected an image of himself in the temple, we're told. Uh, They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so that the Jews should forget the law and change the ordinances, and whosoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. That's the historical record that we have of what this individual did. As I said, he put an idol in the temple, stopped the daily sacrifices. Now, you should see in this, what we have with this individual is an incredible model or dress rehearsal, if you like, of exactly what Antichrist will do. And Jesus makes reference to this in Matthew 24, when he speaks of this historical event in a yet future context. Remember Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 1.9, let me just remind you, he says, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and the thing which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. As a result of what Antiochus Epiphanes did, it leads to the Maccabean Revolt, something you may have heard about. In 167 BC, a Jewish priest by the name of Matthias um, was so incensed uh, by the desecration of the temple and the erecting of this idol in the holy place, not only did he refuse to worship this idol, but also started killing the Hellenistic Jews. They were the Jews that had adopted the Greek way of life. As a result, he and his five sons were forced to flee into the wilderness. Interesting, isn't it? That we have this antichrist type character who, as a result, Jews are forced to flee into the wilderness. it's kind of a model very reminiscent of Revelation twelve fourteen in that. Well, after Matthias' death about a year later, his son Judas maccabeus whose name meant hammer, formed an army and led the revolt against Antiochus, and he was successful. Uh, again, he overthrew the Seleucid control of Israel. And when the Jews finally entered the temple, they found only one day's supply of the consecrated olive oil that was needed to maintain the light on the menorah, you know, the seven-branch lampstand. Um, so this is that, typically the menorah, what it would look like. It was only one day's supply, and this was to be kept burning continually according to the Torah. Well, according to the Jewish Talmud, the priests poured oil into the seven lamps and lit it, so that it would bring forth life, knowing that it was only going to last for one day. Problem was it was going to take time to manufacture some more. But miraculously, this one day supply of oil burned for eight days, which was the length of time it took to press and prepare and consecrate the new oil. Well, as a result of this, and to commemorate the event, the Jews add the Feast of Hanukkah. To their to the annual festival, also called the Festival of Lights or the Festival of Rededication, it's actually authenticated by Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 22. He mentions it there. And after this event, the Maccabees then founded the Hasmonean royal dynasty and established Jewish independence in the land. Now they were still under the control of the surrounding nations in a sense but they had this short period of independence um, which led up to 63 BC when finally Rome then put the the thumb on them and then we find that the Herods start to take over these uh, Idumeans, descendants of Edom, and then take over. So there's a little bit of the history. So an incredible foreshadowing of Antichrist here. Antiochus, as I said, is this individual foreshadowing Antichrist. He achieved great power by subduing others, rise to power by offering false security. He was intelligent and persuasive, controlled by Satan, Satan's man of the hour, if you like, an adversary of Israel and a subjugated Israel, caused the Jews to flee to the wilderness, desecrated the temple, erected this image, this abomination in the temple, and his rule, of course, was then terminated by divine judgment. Well, the final chapter of the book really just continues and tells out the vision. Gabriel reveals to Daniel that there is a time of trouble coming for Israel, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. And this, of course, we're told in the text, will be followed by a resurrection of the dead. So that really brings us to the end of the book of Daniel. We just read, And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, this is a strange thing. Again, this is now looking future to Antichrist. There should be a 1,290 days. Well, if you do the math, that's an extra 30 days than you'd expect. And then we're told, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335th day. These are strange numbers. Why are we given this detail? Well, <clears throat> when we look at the details of this, again, just to summarise. That decree of Artaxerxes, Nehemiah 2 is where it's referenced. That first period of time leading up to Jesus coming, uh, uh, when Jesus rises into Jerusalem, the temple then after this, in this interval in the church age, is destroyed. That takes us up um, to, well, beyond where we are now. Um, Antichrist then confirms a covenant for seven years with Israel. Um, That's what we're going to see. That's what Revelation 6 talks about this covenant that's established. This is the final week of Daniel's. Prophecy that we looked at in chapter 9. We're going from there. We've got the tribulation period itself, the seven year period. Okay? And we have the first period of time, which Jesus refers to as the beginning of sorrows. Okay? A period of 1,260 days. In the middle of the week, we're told, as we saw in that prophecy in Daniel 9, there's this image, this abomination put in the temple. Now, that means the temple in Jerusalem has got to be rebuilt. And then we get to the great tribulation. Again, Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24. And this period of time like nothing ever known uh, on this earth. That eventually will be concluded by the return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation period. But then we have this seemingly 75 day interval. Okay, So the end of the tribulation. What seems to happen at this point after 30 days is that this abomination of desolation is removed. So that's the 1290. And then we get to this point where seemingly we begin the millennium, where Christ's rule on earth begins. So during this interval, there's a number of things that happen. There's the removal of the abomination of desolation. Antichrist is resurrected. Now that may sound strange, but actually if you do study, you find that when Jesus comes back at the second coming, Antichrist is destroyed. And yet then he's thrown alive into the lake of fire. And what we find is that during the tribulation, Satan sets up this satanic trinity. He's, as it were, in the position of God the Father. We have Antichrist as the son, in a sense, Antichrist, a pseudo-son. And then the false prophet as a type of the Holy Spirit. And God seemingly allows this this kind of game to play out to conclusion, so that Antichrist becomes, if you like, the first fruits of those who are resurrected to damnation. It's a very interesting thing. If you want to study more on this, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, um, Footsteps of the Messiah, goes into this and uh, it's fascinating. You start to pull all these scriptures together. But then you find that Satan himself, so Antichrist and the false prophet, are then cast alive into the lake of fire. Satan's bound for the millennium, for this thousand year reign. And then we see the resurrection of the tribulation saints. And again, that's a reference from Revelation 20. There's a setting of thrones for the saints of those who are going to rule with Christ. Okay, and then the judgment of the Gentiles. And we see the sheep and the goats. The pro-Semitic sheep, those that are pro-Israel, who enter into the kingdom. And the anti-Semitic goats, those who have not treated Jesus' brethren well. And so that brings us to a conclusion. So all of those events are going to occur after the Great Tribulation, but before the start of the millennium, which seems to be, again, that thirteen thirty-fifth 35th day. And we're told, blessed indeed will be those who come to the 1,335th day, as they will then enter into Jesus' millennial kingdom. And we should be mindful of those things. Next time we pray, thy kingdom come. Because the kingdom that we are praying about is the kingdom that Jesus will establish. Just as we saw in Daniel 7, just as reiterated here, when Jesus will return, he will set up his kingdom and he will rule on the throne of david so when we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven that is what we're praying for let's bow our hearts father we thank you for your word we thank you that there is so much depth and detail and lord although these things may sometimes be confusing lord we have your scripture with us we can read and study and go over these things Father, help us to absorb them and to understand the implications to us as well. The the so what question. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this detail. But Father, your word tells us since all of these things are going to be as they are, what manner of persons ought we to be? Oh Lord, your word tells us that we should be holy, living godly lives. Father, because you have such control over history, Father, help us to be willing to submit and bow before you. Lord, we know that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Lord, we want to do so willingly and with joy in our hearts now. So Father, we thank you for these things. May it impact us and change the way we live. That we live every moment for your glory, looking forward to your coming kingdom. And Father, we do thank you for Daniel, for the faithfulness that man had, the way he lived his life before you. May it be an encouragement and a challenge to us, we ask. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.